Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 10 through 20 together. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, But I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever been in a conversation where... Uh, The topic is a little bit awkward that you're trying to address, and so you stammer around the topic a little bit, and then you uh, make a disclaimer here, a disclaimer there, and you start forward, and then you back up a little bit, just because you're not really wanting to go directly at the topic, but you want to get your point across. You ever had that sensation before? Uh, If you read chapter 4, verses 10 through 20 uh, accurately, Paul is having that same problem a little bit. He's bringing up the issue of money. He's talking about the financial gift that they have given to him. And I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but he kind of stammers around a little bit. Notice verse 10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before. I'm not saying you were concerned about me. You were concerned. You just lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak from want. It's not like I don't have enough. That's not what I'm saying. I'm grateful for the gift that you gave to me. And I'm not actually just seeking the gift itself. Our our friendship isn't based on the gift. It's based upon our mutual love for one another. And so Paul starts in the topic and he stops in the topic. And and I think it's because it's about money, right? And people get a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Sometimes you're talking about money. You may have noticed that we skipped uh, verses four through nine. We're gonna come back and we're gonna do do those next week. And the reason that we skipped four through nine is very simple. I don't wanna talk about money on Mother's Day. Not that I'm uncomfortable talking about money. I'm actually, I'm really not uncomfortable talking about money because it's such an important topic. If you look throughout the Bible, look particularly at Jesus' teaching, he talks about money all the time. Not that God's reaching into your pocket because he really doesn't need your money. But money is such an accurate indicator of where our heart is. The way we spend our money indicates what we really love. The way we spend our time, what we set our affections on, is often indicated by the way that we spend our money. So Paul is talking about, he's addressing the issue of money, but in 4, 10 through 20, there's actually a much bigger topic that he's addressing. If you go all the way back to chapter 4 and verse 4 through the end of the book, what he's really talking about is peace. And that's the bigger topic. Peace with God. 
peace from God, peace with my circumstances, peace with whatever it is that God has brought into my life. Or another way of saying that is contentment. Are you content? Are you settled with what God has brought into your life? Circumstantially, that's verses 4 through 9, or financially or physically, the setting in which you live, the relationships that you have, the job that you have, your physical or material abundance. And Paul takes that principle and he applies it specifically to his own life in relationship to them financially and the gift that he has received. So one of the major lessons that I want us to draw out from this final section in Philippians is this. Money or physical material abundance cannot buy contentment. It can't. Even Time Magazine tells us so. Great article. Just came out this last week. April 27th, 2009 edition. This is what Time Magazine concluded from their research. Money does not buy happiness. Scripture asserts this. Research confirms it. Once you reach the median level of income, roughly $50,000 a year, wealth and contentment go their separate ways. And studies find that a millionaire is no more likely to be happy than someone earning one-twentieth as much. I read that and I say, God, test me. (laughs) I think I could be maybe one of those statistical outliers that's actually a millionaire and content. God, put me to the test. I'll take that trial on me, right? So far, he hasn't given me that test. Ben Franklin, who probably was a millionaire himself, made this observation. He said, money never made a man happy yet. Easy for him to say, right? Nor will it. There's nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of its filling a vacuum, it makes one. If it satisfies one want, it doubles and triples that want another way. That was a true proverb of the wise man. Rely upon it. And then he quotes the book of Proverbs. He says, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Or as it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God. Paul's telling Timothy not flee from wealth, but flee from the love of money. Because only one thing can be enthroned in your life. There can only be one first love. As Jesus said, you will either love God or love money. You can't serve two masters. Will you serve the Lord or will you serve wealth or physical abundance or prosperity? If you chase after the love of physical abundance, you will not be content. It cannot bring you contentment. I want you to turn with me Chapter 4 and verse 11, Philippians. Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Contentment comes from within. 
Paul says, contentment is not based upon my circumstances. Contentment transcends circumstances. This word for contentment was actually uh, considered by the Stoics and the Epicureans as the ultimate goal of life. And Paul was very familiar with their philosophy, so he borrows this word. And he proclaims a very similar principle that they said. Contentment comes from within the person. It's not based upon externals. That's the definition of contentment. Let me give you a quote here from Seneca, Stoic philosopher. He said, The happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances. Epictetus, another philosopher, wrote, Wherever I go, it will be well with me. For here where I am, it was well with me, not because of my location, but because of my reasoned principles. And these I carry with me. And with possession of them, I am content wherever I be and whatever I do. These philosophers' contentment came from within. It was something that transcended what was actually being experienced by them externally, their circumstances in life. Now, whether it was Paul or the Stoics, they didn't mean that you're unaffected by your circumstances. Paul, in fact, he knew sorrow, didn't he? He lists out the hardships that he has gone through, sleepless nights, a night spent in the deep, uh, 39 lashes from the Jews many times he received, being imprisoned, being stoned. And Paul said, yet in all my sorrow, I have joy, I have contentment, I have peace because I know that I'm living well before the Lord. Now, the difference between Paul and the Stoics is the Stoics thought that any person could just discover or manufacture peace within themselves or contentment. Paul said, no, the reason that I have contentment is because I have Christ. It's not self-sufficiency, it's Christ-sufficiency. Look with me again in chapter 4 and verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this is a... Probably the one verse that's been printed on more t-shirts than any other verse. Um, If we use good Bible study methods, we take it in context. In the context, this probably doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you can bench press 300 pounds. What's he talking about? He's saying, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can live contentedly and with joy in my life, no matter what my circumstances are, because God dwells in me. In a sense, this whole book of Philippians has been pointing us toward this issue. How can you know contentment? You can know contentment if Christ is the center of your life. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. And if for me to live is Christ, then my circumstances cannot crush me. Remember the setting of Philippians. Where is Paul when he writes? He's in a Roman prison. Paul is in a Roman prison. And he says, I have joy right now. I have joy. Matter of fact, some people think the theme of Philippians is joy because it's everywhere in the book. Paul says, I have joy even though I'm in prison. Why? Because now that I'm in prison, I am chained to guards and every day I get new guards and I share the gospel with them and they go out and they share the gospel with people in Caesar's household and many are trusting Christ in Rome because I am in prison. I am filled with joy. I'm not crushed by this. And now that I'm in prison, there are actually some people who are so crazy, they think that they can cause me distress and tribulation in my imprisonment. And so they're going out and they're preaching Christ from bad motives. And Paul says, that doesn't discourage me. 
Because the gospel of Christ is being proclaimed. So if my circumstances are wonderful and I'm, I'm abundant and I'm free, Paul says, I can give thanks to God and worship him and he can be exalted in my body. If I'm imprisoned and I'm under the threat of death, then Christ can be exalted in my body. And so I have joy, I have peace, I have contentment because Christ is the very center of my life. That is the source of contentment. And if Christ is not the center of your life, you will never be content with anything that life can bring you circumstantially. Third principle, contentment must be learned. Look again with me back in chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Very interesting word he uses there for learning. It means uh, literally to be initiated into the secrets of. It was a word that was used by the mystery religions back in Paul's day. If you you were an initiate and they brought you in and told you all the secrets, then your life would be rich and full. But that wasn't for everyone. You had to be initiated into this process. Paul says, I've been initiated into the secrets of knowing contentment. And what is it? It's Christ in me. But he said, I had to learn it. And it's been a process Because I place Christ at the center of my life and then troubles and tribulation comes and what happens? Well, Christ kind of slides out of the center and for me personally what happens is what slides into the center is getting control of my circumstances so that I can have externally peace and then I tell myself then I can have internally peace. And so what becomes the goal of my life is to have pleasant circumstances. Whether that's physical health or material prosperity or whatever it is, or relational conflict is gone and there's, there's healthy, wonderful relationships, whatever it is, I'm trying to manage these external circumstances so that I can have peace. And Christ has been removed from the throne and I've taken charge of my life. And I realize that after a while. It's kind of subtle, but then it slips aside and I'm, I'm, I'm discontent and I'm discontent. I'm, just, I'm growing and I'm in discontent and I realize, what's happened here? Christ is not the center of life for me. And I put Christ back in the center of my life and I begin to know peace again and I realize, you know, nothing in my life can rob me of contentment if Christ is the center. If I'm in the midst of a trial, Christ can be exalted through the trial. I may not like it, it may not be pleasant, but Christ can be exalted and I can have peace. Or if I'm blessed, I can give thanks to God and rejoice for his gifts to me and I can have contentment. But I have to learn it. And if there is one principle that we walk away with this morning, it is that you must learn contentment. And every single one of us, here's a fact, we will all, we will either grow in contentment through life or we will grow increasingly discontent. You will take one of those two paths. You will either grow in contentment and say, God, what you have brought me in life, you can use this to exalt yourself. And I accept it as from your hand. Or increasingly, you will want something more or something different or something other than what he has brought and you will grow more and more discontent and more and more bitter. And as a person, you will shrink. Or you can grow in contentment and you can become fuller and richer. And one of the primary ways that we do this is we have a proper understanding of what can physical or material abundance do for us. What does money do for us and what does it not do for us? In our culture, I would argue throughout human history, even in in biblical culture, we are so tempted to believe that if we just have enough money, we can purchase contentment. 
I think it was Andrew Carnegie who said, he was asked, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. Right? Just, just a little bit more. But when we put money or material wealth in its proper perspective, we can use it. We can use it for great good, but it doesn't own us. We don't become its slave. We become its master and we use it to exalt Jesus Christ. A few lessons that I want us to draw from Paul's experience. What can money do for us? Turn with me again back to chapter 4 and verse 19. Paul says, My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, I want you to think back for just a moment to the book of Genesis. When was Adam commissioned to work? Was he commissioned to work before the fall or after the fall? Before the fall, that's really important. Work is not a result of the curse that came from sin. Adam sinned, therefore we have to work. No, he was given work, and we're told in the book of Ecclesiastes, work is actually a gift from God. I labor, and as a result of my labors, I'm able to provide for my needs and the needs of my family. And when I'm content with that, Ecclesiastes tells us that is a gift from God, and I can sleep well at night. It's a gift. One of my great problems becomes when I confuse my needs with my wants. Notice what Paul says here. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. According to, in line with his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, he has more than enough to supply your needs. He doesn't promise that he will supply all of our wants. Oh, it seems so simple, right? Uh, I'm trying to teach this principle right now to uh, a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. We really don't need more Barbies and more Legos. It's not a need. It is a want, and that's okay, and it's, it's okay to have wants. But can we agree, it's not a need. What do we really need? And I'm trying to drill this into their heads. I, I have no idea if it sinks. It doesn't even sink into my head most of the time. But I'm trying to get this across. What are actual needs in life? Keep your place here in Philippians 4 and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy 6, Paul gives a brief definition of needs. Verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Christ-sufficient. Not self-sufficient, but with these we shall be content. If we have food and if we have covering. Do we have food and covering? Is there shelter over our heads and clothes on our back? And food that we can eat. Paul says that is enough to actually be content in life. Remember Paul's circumstances again? Where is he? He's in prison. Paul doesn't even have freedom. Paul is sitting there with chains on his wrist. He he, he cannot leave. And yet he says, I am content. I have all that I need for contentment. And so often what happens, the reason we become so discontent is we confuse wants and needs. And more and more and more so in an increasingly materialistic culture. What do we need? We need food and covering. And God has given us the gift of work. Normally the way life works is we get jobs, we work, we earn money, and we are able to provide for our needs. That's how God has designed it. Second thing that money can do for us is it can Give us the opportunity to provide for physical needs of others. Uh, keep your place here in 1 Timothy, because we're going to come back here in just a second. And turn back to Philippians 4 again. In verse 15. 
Paul says, you yourselves also know Philippians that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Paul had some real needs. He needed a cloak to cover him. He needed food to eat. And these Philippian believers gave so that they could share in providing for Paul's needs. Now, was the Philippian church a rich church? Super abundant church. They had so much wealth that they just gave a little bit of their extra surplus. Now, we know, as a matter of fact, that they were a poor church. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that they were a poor church, but they begged for the opportunity to share in providing for Paul's needs. Sometimes God gives you a job and you earn money, and sometimes you have an abundance and you can share from that abundance to meet the needs of others. Sometimes God will actually call you to cut into what you consider your own needs and reduce your consumption of your own needs so that you can share for the needs of others. That's how he has designed the body of Christ to work together. And not government assistance, but the body of Christ. So sometimes you have a job and I'm without work. And you're able to provide not just for your needs, but you're able to provide for my needs as well. I want you to turn back to 1 Timothy 6 again. In verse 17, again, Paul writes, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Why has God given us material abundance? First, to enjoy it. Enjoy the fruit of the labor that God has given you. Enjoy it. Don't fix your hope upon it because you can't take it with you. And you may go into a recession and lose it all. So don't fix your hope on it. But while you have it, enjoy it. But don't just enjoy it, share it. Verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed, that is contentment peace, life indeed. It's not found merely in consumption, but in sharing with those who have need. Now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but you really haven't, in a sense, jumped into being a member, participating in the body of Christ here or anywhere else, then you may not experience this. If you're disconnected from deep relationships with other believers, then you're going to go through a need. You're going to go through it on your own. But you know, that's not how God has designed the body of Christ. I've seen incredible displays of that, uh, this principle this year in uh, our, our adult Bible fellowships, our Sunday schools, our home church groups, where we've had members of this body who've really suffered, whether it's been physical diseases or loss of loved ones uh, or financial need and hardship and the body of Christ has surrounded them and provided for them and it's been an incredible, beautiful picture of God giving one prosperity while another has need and they come together and they share and that is how God has designed it. But if you're disconnected, you'll never know that. Uh, One family here uh, at the church, uh, they had two small kids, three and under, and then uh, through a series of events, they took three more children under the age of three into their home. So in a matter of about two weeks, they went from two to five and they live in a two-bedroom house. And their, their church, 
Okay, their, their Sunday school class, which is their, where they really experienced biblical community, came alongside them, surrounded them, and gave to them, and continued to give to them diapers and cribs and car seats and meals and food and all kinds of encouragement and prayer. And that's how the body of Christ is designed to work. Okay, that's how God made it. So sometimes God's going to give you lack so others can fill in. Sometimes he's going to give you an abundance so that you can share. That's how he created the body of Christ. Third principle, money can buy us opportunities to advance the gospel of Christ. Turn back to Philippians again, chapter 1 and verse 3. That's how Paul begins the book. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering petition with joy in every petition I make for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. How did they participate in the gospel? Well, they probably shared the gospel in Philippi, but they also gave financially to Paul so that when he left Philippi and he went to Thessalonica, he was able to spend all of his time sharing the gospel and building up believers and he didn't have to ask this other young church to support him financially. Nor did he have to stop and make tents to provide for his own physical needs. He was able to spend all of his time promoting the gospel of Christ. And he went on to Athens and he went on to Corinth and he never had to ask money from these other churches because the church in Philippi had so abundantly supplied him that he was able to take the gospel where it had not been yet. Now these folks who are all standing up here and standing out there who are going out and going on missions trips this summer, what they're going to do is they're going to take the gospel to places it's never been before. They're going to tell people about Jesus Christ that have never, ever heard about Jesus Christ before. They're going to take the gospel to places that you and I are not going to go. And so what do we do? We step back and we reach into our pockets and we give. And as we give, the gospel goes out through these other people. That's how God has designed the body of Christ to function. So sometimes you give, and it is for advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here at this church, sometimes you give money to this church, and I, I want to tell you, uh, we, we work really hard to make sure that your dollars are going for advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're very, very conscientious about that, because this is your investment in eternity. We have a, a financial team. It's got three deacons on it, and two staff members. The deacons are Ted Moore, Clark Ely, David Swanson. Staff members are Debbie Howard and Buck Anderson. And they work really hard to make sure that every dollar that you have is going toward advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I asked them if they would to uh, stuff a little card in the bulletin this week so that you could have a sense of, of where does your money go? Because for me, personally, I want to invest wisely because if I invest a dollar in Grace Bible Church, I can't invest that dollar anywhere else. So, if you get on our website, you're going to see something that looks like this. Okay, across the bottom, it's got these five little blocked out things. Can't really see it very well on the overhead. That's all right. You got a little card here. Where does it go? The first category is the general fund. That goes for paying all of our bills. Okay? But within the general fund, you should also know that a minimum of 20% of every dollar that you give goes to what's called the Global Impact Ministry. That is support, directly supporting missionaries who are taking the gospel, whether it's locally and on campus, Texas A&M, 
or throughout the world, 20% of that money goes directly to supporting missionaries and promoting missions within our church and within the community. Now, we spend more, probably more like 30 to 35% actually on missions because we have uh, money that's spent through the high school ministry and through the college ministry, and we have staff members that devote most of their time to missions. So probably 30 to 35% of our general fund budget goes to missions. I just happened to do a missions conference for Dallas Seminary this last semester, and um, one of the things that I, I learned or had confirmed for me is there are churches all over the country, including Bible churches, that are dropping their missions program. It's, it's too expensive. They've got other general fund needs that they need to pay. I will tell you, I believe that one of the reasons God has blessed Grace Bible Church is because we have kept our eyes focused on getting the gospel to the nations because God loves the nations. And so God has been able to bless us. You know, we are almost right at budget for this year. We had to lower our budget. It's a recession. But what we've spent and what we've taken in is almost exactly the same. At the same time, we were able to raise $900,000 for opening a new campus that almost doubled our capacity to reach out into this community. That is because you are generous givers. And I think that is why God has blessed this church so incredibly. Thank you. From the Lord, I say thank you for giving so generously. And know that every time you give a dollar, we really take it seriously that this is your investment in eternity. Second area that, things, that money goes to is debt retirement. We, we finally paid off this building. We had the other site paid off. We paid off this. We had a couple months we had no debt, and then we got some more debt. We, we went over and we bought Southwood Campus. The reason we bought that campus, uh, we thought a lot about it. We saw people coming in here. We're maxed out on Sunday school space. We're pretty much maxed out in the auditorium for worship. Uh, parking is terrible. How can we expand our impact in this community? So we thought through our options. One option would be that we could sell this site. We could go out on the bypass and we could purchase more property and we could put up a bigger building, which is a fine strategy and that has worked very well for some churches. But what we realize is that God has given us an opportunity to be near to the campus. It is strategic for the Great Commission to reach out to students. If we leave this site then we'll be pulling away from the campus. We don't want to do that. And if we leave this site and we go out there, we're probably going to have to spend 20 to $30 million to put up a, a site that could expand our capacity. On the other hand, then God turned around and we saw him drop this other campus in our laps for $2.5 million as opposed to $20 million. And $1 million in reno- renovations. So for $3.5 million, we almost got to double our size. We spend some money reducing the debt because... We feel like, philosophically, we're one church. It's not Southwood that has to pay that off. It's Grace Bible Church. And the sooner we pay that off, the sooner we can go and look at another site somewhere in this city or somewhere in this area and expand the gospel's outreach for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we want to knock that down. That's another place that your money goes to. Campus improvements. Um, We've relabeled all these recently, so we're not going to change it again. We might want to put there just campus maintenance. Uh, Things wear out. Things break down. Philosophically, what we want to do with our facilities is we want to be adequate but not extravagant. We need to um, upgrade and fix air conditioners. Well, some of you might feel like we should not pay quite so much for air conditioning. (laughs) 
But if they break, you'd feel otherwise. Well, you know, uh, air conditioning and heating and, uh, you know, things just get broken and you, you have to fix them, okay? Just so that people can come and worship and not be distracted. The Matil Fund, that's a fund that was set up years ago in honor of a family uh, that uh, used to go to Grace. They have since passed away. That is for physical, financial needs for members of the congregation. We feel like that we are responsible as a body of Christ to care for one another. Sometimes that happens in Sunday school classes. Sometimes people give to this fund. And and we've had people come in, members of our church, who fall on hard times and they can't pay an electric bill. Uh, Or they, they they can't pay for food. They need money for physical needs. Well, if you know of such a person, you can give to that person through this fund to meet those physical, real physical needs for members of the body. Then the final area is the Timothy Trust. Uh, Timothy Trust was set up by Jeff Payne years ago when he started our, our internship program. And in my opinion, our internship program is one of the greatest ways that we participate in making disciples of all nations. We train these interns, then we send them out into the world. You can give money that way. Now, I, I listed all these things out. We don't, we don't talk about money much. People get awkward talking about money. I don't, I don't feel that way because we work really, really hard to make sure that as many of your dollars go toward actually advancing the gospel as possible. And I want you to know that we take that very, very seriously. And here's why. When you give, it is an opportunity to share an eternal reward. A financial giving toward the gospel is an actual eternal investment. Look with me again in chapter 4 of Philippians, in verse 17. Paul says, Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul uses really interesting language. It's from the commercial realm. What he is literally saying is not that I seek or or not that I'm eagerly seeking after or searching. It's a very intense word. He says, not that I'm eagerly seeking after the gift. What I'm seeking is the interest that accrues in your account. It's an accounting term. He says, I'm seeking the interest that accrues to your account. When you invest in things that matter for eternity, God takes that investment and he guards it in a celestial bank account, so to speak, and you are earning interest. It's a little principle I'm trying to also teach my kids right now. They do chores and they earn some money and they get a little bit of an allowance and we have them divided up. Money that you can spend on yourself and stuff. Money you give to the church and money that you're saving. Now, when you save that money, we're going to drive down, we're going to put it in the bank. And this is a hard concept to understand, but I'm, I'm trying to explain to them interest. When you put your money in the bank, they will actually pay you to hold your money. I don't tell them that they loan your money out and it's not actually there and they keep a percentage. I don't get into that, right? I just tell them, there your money is. It's sitting. You can go get it anytime, okay? And you're insured up to 100000 so don't worry about it. We're not there yet. And you're, well, you're not going to earn a lot. You're going to earn pennies a day right now. But, but, but if you choose not to buy a Lego, which I promise you you're going to get bored with. No, Daddy, not that one, because I, I, t- I promised it, and I literally have heard this. If I just have that toy, I will never, ever ask for another toy again. And it's I hear myself saying that to God. Right? If I can just have such and such. No. But it, it will break. It will wear out. You will get bored with it. Yeah, he doesn't believe me. But... You take that money instead and you put it in the bank, it's going to earn interest. God says, if you invest in things that I tell you last for eternity, 
you will reap an eternal reward. What is that reward exactly? You know, I don't know. There are a lot of different facets to to this whole concept of reward. Part of it is standing before Jesus Christ and he says, well lived. Well lived. You chose so well. That short investment of time that you had on earth, well lived. That's part of the reward. Another part of the reward is actually just, it's just people. You invested in the gospel and so people trusted Christ. You invested your time in building others up in the faith and they grew and they matured. And so when you enter into heaven, Paul says of the Philippians, for example, you are my joy and my crown. He says of the Thessalonican believers, you are my joy and crown. You are my reward. You will be there and there will be people surrounding the throne of Christ that come up to you and say, thank you. And Jesus says, here is your eternal investment your reward. And so every dollar that you invest, we take it really, really, really seriously because it's an eternal investment. Remember, God doesn't actually need our money. He doesn't. He's got more than enough wealth. He's giving us opportunity to invest in all of eternity. A final reason is that financial giving is actually one of the ways that we worship. Financial giving is an act of worship. Again, chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You hear the sacrificial terminology? It says, you, you pull it out of your pocket and you put that dollar in the plate or you... You get online and you give and you don't often just think about the fact that what's happening is an aroma is coming up before the Lord. It is an offering. It's a sacrifice. This is very Old Testament imagery that he's using. And remember, every time that a worshiper wanted to come into the presence of the Lord in the Old Testament, it cost them. They were born into the nation of Israel. That was free. Just as you are born into the family of God when you believe in Jesus Christ, it's absolutely free. But when you worship, the nature of worship is that it is costly. You're giving of your time this morning. You're you're not doing something, in a sense, just for yourself. You're coming here and sacrificing your time and you're praising and worshiping. Or the plate goes by and you, you take that dollar out and you put money in the plate and you don't spend it on just yourself, but you give. It's an act of worship. It's sacrificial by its nature. That is worship, we're told. Giving is one of the forms whereby we worship. So for us to learn contentment, and peace in this life, one of the things we've got to do is we've got to understand the nature of, of physical abundance, of material prosperity, of wealth. So we don't set our hearts upon it and think it can give us something that it can't, but instead we use it. And we use it for an eternal investment. As we close, what I'd like for us to do is just go before the Lord and let's examine our hearts. Are we content? And we're going to bring this topic up again next week. We're going to talk more about our circumstances and, and peace with God, but I'd like for us to think this morning more, most specifically about our contentment in relationship to our finances and our money. Are we content? Are we clinging to it? Are we believing that it can bring us something that it can't? Or are we content with just what God has given us right now? And are we, are we as a result sharing with others? Let's go before the Lord and just let him have some time examining our hearts and then I'll close us in prayer.
Father, I thank you that you don't leave us alone. I thank you that you are continually provoking us and challenging us and coming after us because you know that nothing in this world will satisfy us. We will only be content when we have Jesus Christ at the center of life. And with him at the center of life, Father, circumstances can't crush us. They can't throw us, throw us off base. They can't remove our joy and our peace. Father, I thank you that you continuously remind us of that. And for some of us living in such a materialistic culture, we need to be prompted continuously not to set our hearts on, on things, not to, to worship wealth and love it, It's fleeting, it doesn't last. But on the other hand, Lord, you can take it, you can use it, you can multiply it, honor yourself through it. I pray, Lord, that uh, even just, not just this morning, but through the course of this whole study, that we would increasingly learn what it means for to us to live as Christ. I pray that through this body of believers, uh, we would display the love of Christ to one another as we share with one another and we share with this community. Pray, Lord, that we would be known as generous and giving people because you're a generous and giving God. Thank you for giving us Jesus. It's in him we worship. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.